Hi there, and welcome to our Dairy Exporter podcast series on Fodder Beat. I'm Anne Lee, and in this podcast series, I'll be talking with Dr. Jim Gibbs from Lincoln University. Jim's a lecturer at the university and is also the university's veterinarian. He's originally from Australia and came to New Zealand to take up his post at Lincoln in 2004. Jim will be familiar to a lot of you for his work on fodder beet over the years. He's worked with farmers along the length and breadth of the country and has carried out some pretty intensive research both inside and outside the lab. He's spent plenty of time talking with farmers and working with them on their systems and seeing what actually happens out on farm. Those farmers have included dairy farmers and beef farmers, both finishers and breeders, and winter graziers, some of them operating at very large scale. I sat down with Jim recently. As a result, we've built a podcast series that'll cover a range of topics on all things beat. So take a listen. We hope you enjoy. In this, the first podcast in our podcast series on fodder beat, you'll hear about some of Jim Gibbs's earlier work and the findings that give some great insight into how and why best practice management systems in use today have evolved. When Jim arrived at Lincoln, he very quickly began a study that in some ways continues today in that he's still looking at forages and rumen function. Initially, his study looked at very high quality pasture and the effect that was having on the rumen. The suspicion was that the high quality pasture was acting more like a grain with its high ME, high sugar content causing a level of acidosis that in turn was having a lameness effect thought to be at play in cows in total mixed ration diets overseas. But from that work, Jim concluded there was no link to lameness and that high-quality, well-managed pasture is a great diet New Zealand dairy cows are well adapted to. The study, though, led to some interesting findings that you'll see have an important link with how forage crops such as fodder beet are managed. Here's Jim. The most interesting information that dropped out of that very large project was that the all-grass diet was a spectacularly healthy and happy diet for cows. But there were physiological changes that meant the rumens on grass-based systems like ours were very different from those of total mixed ration cattle overseas. The literature was stacked with information from total mixed ration experiments and uh, various rumen function programs for many, many years, as might be expected. And we demonstrated that the rumens were really different. Once we had uh, established that, we've spent the rest of the time working out the various ways in which they're different. But there are a couple of things in particular that um, still come into play, particularly with wintering, which is what we're talking about today. One of them is that the rumens are much bigger. So dairy, dairy cows on New Zealand systems uh, will have rumens that are approximately 20 to 25% of their live weight. Now, internationally, it doesn't matter which livestock system you look through in cattle, be it weaners, be it steers, be it bulls, be it replacement dairy heifers, or dairy cows in total mixed ration systems overseas, what's very consistent is that their rumen volume will be 10 to 12%. So dairy cows in our system have a really large rumen. Now, that is an adaptation to the feeding systems that we use. One of the consequences of that is that they uh, eat differently. And if you give them the opportunity to, they can load that rumen in a way that isn't done in other systems. The second thing, and arguably these days, we might consider this the most important thing, is that there's a tremendous amount of water 
in our systems. Mm. And that wasn't ever appreciated. If you're looking at um, material where the animals are eating 18 or 20 kilos and the dry matter is 15%, that can mean that the water flows that they're eating, independent of whatever they may drink, and often that's very low, but the water flows from what they're eating can be over 100 litres. And that's um, not something that's ever been established in the literature prior to that. Now, that has a series of knock-on effects in the whole animal, but it has a a series of really important effects in the rumen. And that's where we really began looking deeply at wintering rumen function. So originally that was on brassicas and ryegrass, wintering systems for that. But uh, right from the earliest days, we moved over to fodder beet. So New Zealand dairy cows have big rumens and there's a lot of water running through them. The other thing that Jim pointed out was that to make money out of our pasture-based systems, we have to have a competitive grazing system. So that is, we have to graze down to those residuals to achieve pasture quality and to get down to those residuals. Cows have to be competing with each other. You have to be setting them uh, for a certain period of grazing and um, making them work for that feed. So we have trained our cows to graze hard. Here's Jim again. The most important issue is that we've effectively selected these cows to eat and to eat hard. And they'll eat hard when it's available. And they'll also pick up very quickly on the time that you give them to do that and the amount that you give them to do that. So if either of them are compromised, they change their grazing behaviour. So one of, one of the very interesting um, research issues that's come out with our work in the last three or four years has been that you can change grazing behaviour by the amount you allocate to them. So uh, a current PhD student is Sophie Prendergast and in an honours that she did here at Lincoln University some years before, she first noticed that if she gave these cattle uh, ad-lib fodder beet, that their grazing behaviour flattened out over the day. If she restricted the amount of fodder beet that was given to them, they concentrated their grazing in the early part. But once they understood that there was no restriction to it, they stopped that and they began to graze around a 24-hour cycle. Mm -hmm. Now, that sort of eating behaviour, and the reason that we're most interested in it is is because it changes rumen function. And in effect, you've got the boiler man in a suit shoveling coal into the boiler. And if he shovels it all in at the beginning very quickly, you can expect he'll melt the show down. If he shovels it in more regularly across the whole of the day, then he gets a better result. Mm. So that grazing behaviour is um, inextricably tied to rumen function. They are much cleverer than we give them credit for, particularly around time and amounts. Mm. They, they work out times very quickly, within a few days. Mm. They know if they're restricted on time, then they have to change the way that they eat, and they do. So with an understanding of cow grazing behaviour, how we have selected them and what we're expecting them to do, it's important then for a moment just to consider what this new crop is we're expecting them now to go on to and eat. What are some of the characteristics of fodder beet? I talked to Jim about that too. So fodder beet is effectively a giant beetroot. It's the same species, Um, the composition is very similar, it's just much larger. Um, the world record uh, fodder beet sizes for the bulbs are 70 kilos, so they can be enormous. The 
like um, beetroot itself, the, the bulb has a relatively low protein content and it has lots of sugar. So it's quite common here in New Zealand to have even the fodder bee varieties, let alone the sugar bee varieties, and they're the same species, if you like, poodles and great danes. They're, it's the same, they've just been selected out of them. But it's quite common to have more than 50% of the dry matter as sucrose. So it's an extremely high sugar content. We don't have any other feed that has anything like that sugar content. The leaves are very different. Um, the leaves will have a protein content that's not very far away from uh, ryegrass. So they can commonly be heading towards 20%. And almost always, if they're good quality leaf, they'll be above 15 or 17%. They also have uh, a little more fibre. So it's pretty common to have most of that leaf with an NDF in the bracket of 25 to 35%. So again, that's like the low end perhaps of grass. Uh, leaves will commonly have quite a lot of calcium. They'll commonly be quite high in calcium. They won't have a tremendous amount of phosphorus. When we look at the bulb, some things are very consistent about this family of plants with the bulb. And there's a few things that come into play with cattle grazing. The first most important one is that this particular plant tissue that the bulb is composed of never accumulates nitrogen in a non-protein form. So you never get nitrate accumulation from beet bulb the way that you do in other crops, grass for example, uh, or brassicas. What about in the leaf? No, you, mm. you don't find particularly high nitrates in the leaf and part of the reason for that is that to get to the leaf it has to have come through the bulb, mm. so it's modulated. So even in times when you've got very high uh, daily dry matter accumulation, and in New Zealand, the upper end of that dry matter accumulation in late summer and early autumn is 250 kilos of dry matter a day. So they're really growing, these crops. Yeah. And even in those cases with um, progressively high nitrogen fertilisation, you don't see that. There was a, a past student at Lincoln University here, uh, Callum Morell, who was working uh, with agronomic uh, adjustments to beet crops in the last year or two. And what Callum demonstrated in his work was even with particularly high nitrogen applications, and by that I mean we were putting 450 kilos of N a hectare on, so it was glowing in the dark. Um, you, don't, you don't accumulate nitrates, you don't accumulate a lot of um, uh, non-protein nitrogen the way we do in other crops. The other part of the tissue, the bulb tissue that's important is that typically it won't hold much calcium and it won't hold much phosphorus. And we'll perhaps come around to the use of phosphorus supplementation uh, later, but that becomes important because if the proportion of leaf to bulb changes, then you change the nutrition of the total plant. That's something that wasn't appreciated very well in the early days. Mm. And it's one of the real values of having uh, number one, good agronomy to grow your crop, because if you have poor agronomy to grow your crop, not only will you have a lower yield, and that's true, but almost always what you'll have is a lower proportion of leaf to bulb right. for various reasons, sometimes fertilisers, and that, that does play a role, sometimes because um, you have either drought stress or um, fungal disease. So there's a number of things that can strip the leaf off, and if a lot of that leaf is stripped off, it changes the nutrition of the crop and then the way that you feed it. The bulb not containing a lot of calcium and phosphorus can sometimes have uh, some other effects. In certain regions, the phosphorus is so low that even with a normal proportion of the bulb, some sort of phosphorus supplementation is required. Right, okay. 
So back in those early days, if you talk about it being very high sugar, mm. um, people understand that now, but in the early days of using this as a crop, that wasn't well understood, was it? No. So the, the history of fodder be, uh, being fed as a stock feed is really interesting. We've got records of it being fed going back more than 500 years. So the Europeans were using it as a, um, as a banked feed for a very long time, but they would grow it, they would harvest it, and they'd hold the bulbs in the shed and they would use them in small amounts. And uh, if, if you convert their measures, so they're often in old tonnes per hectare in wet weight, but, but even back in the 19th century, there were reports of what the killing dose for cattle was. Right. And if you convert them into dry matter, as we would today, and use them, they're actually very close. Right. They would say if you fed more than three kilos, then they would die. Mm-hmm. But for a number of reasons, they fell into the idea that there was something that was inherently toxic about the plant. Um, and for the Europeans who used it the most, that idea uh, was this toxin was contained in the leaf. So astonishingly, they would cut off all the leaf and not use it and then put the bulbs in the shed and hold it. And then they would feed them out in small amounts on the basis if they fed more, they would die. When it came around to photobeat in Australia and New Zealand, it's actually been here for more than 100 years. But it was introduced by British, not surprisingly, and they carried with them this idea. So in 1959, in the New Zealand Veterinary Journal, uh, there was a publication by a very esteemed vet at the time, Coop, and he uh, again published what he considered the killing dose for sheep and the killing dose for cattle. In, in no part of that conversation can you find that this was a, a high sugar plant that was likely to cause a ruminant upset. The idea was very firmly that this was a toxin. And in later years, the toxin of choice that most people uh, fell onto was oxalates and oxalic acid. And the idea was that the leaf in particular contained a lot of oxalic acid. Like most of these things, it's it's a partial truth. Um, It does contain some oxalic acid. That that, uh, plant family does hold oxalic acid in both the leaf and the bulb. And as a consequence, people were pretty fixed on the idea that oxalic acid intake um, produces a milk fever-like syndrome in animals. Mm-hmm. Even, for example, in weathers in sheep, you can produce it if you have enough oxalic acid. But the idea was that this oxalic acid was inherently toxic, therefore limited the amount per day that you could feed them. So in the first manifestations of beet in New Zealand, because it has been here a while, people followed the model where they would often harvest it, cut the leaves off and harvest it, put it away and use it. So originally there were some fears that fodder beet itself had high levels of poison in it, oxalates. So that's why the transition was being managed as it was. But Jim, during his time on his lameness trial, got to work with a Canterbury farmer, Brendan Woods, who'd been persevering for some time with fodder beet, but wasn't having a lot of success. He'd even been told by his vet to give it up because the crop was poisonous. Now Jim was asked to do some work with fodder beet and look at what was going on with it and luckily for him, he says, he got the opportunity to use some cattle nearby to Brendan's uh, and put in rumen fistulas. That meant he could see what was going on with the rumen and he also got to post-mortem some of the cows that were dying in various places around the countryside uh, with fodder beet transitioning and fodder beet feeding. Uh, 
Here's Jim on how he developed his ideas on transitioning. The idea of a transition to the crop wasn't really known. So people were thinking differently, it was poisonous, so they were, they, it wasn't the transition we know today. So they were feeding <clears throat> it slowly because of the poison, not because of understanding that it was a high sugar Yeah, run. and when they say slowly, they might have been looking to get to full intakes in five days or oh, so. Right. So it wasn't like what we know now. Right. And, and the first thing that I noticed with the deaths was that most of them took place, didn't matter where they were, took place in a very narrow window on the calendar of about three days. So they began dying at about day seven and they kept dying to day 10 and then they stopped. Mm-hmm. Now, that, first and foremost, that wasn't consistent with oxalic acid poisoning. And I got to see these uh, animals and um, subsequently post-mortem. And the first thing that I noticed was that these were fairly obviously overt cases of ruminacidosis. I'd spent my career in ruminacidosis mm-hmm. and I realised pretty quickly that there was something else that was going on here. And because I had access to one of the crops nearby, we could put ruined fistula cattle on them very fast within that first year, and we did. And I was able to directly um, monitor what was going on in the rumen if we put them in at different speeds. And from that, we worked out that uh, it was a pretty plain and uncomplicated rumen acidosis. And that was a really good news T intersection Mm. because if there was a poison in the plant, it would always be limited as a diet. But ruminacidosis is a management issue. It means I can change. So from that and from some of that work in the first two years, we came up with a workable transition protocol. And it's the same transition protocol that's in use really across the New Zealand and, and further afield today. You start at no more than one kilo and you don't move up. Once they're all eating that, you don't move up any faster than one kilo every second day. So that transition protocol was really the heart and soul of the earliest investigations into beet and what was wrong with it. And the value of that uh, was if that dry matter allocation of beet, didn't matter what else you fed them, but if that dry matter allocation of beet was adhered to, the problems vanished. So it wasn't that they made a bad problem a lighter problem, it was like waving a magic wand. Hmm. If, if those dry matter allocations were adhered to, the problem disappeared. Right. Because it was an easy protocol, it was taken up widely. So that's part one of our podcast series with Jim Gibbs on Fodderbeat. Thanks for joining us. If you want to learn more, go to our website, nzfarmlife.co.nz and subscribe to our excellent monthly magazines.